Welcome to episode number nine, chapter number nine. Today we are reading from page 67 to 92. This chapter is called Depression. Let's see, here we go. Enjoy. G'day folks. Welcome to the Crashing In Potential podcast. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about resilience. That is getting back up after you have been knocked down. My name is Scott B. Harris, and I'm the author of the book, Crashing Into Potential, Living With My Injured Brain. It's a memoir that I have written and published that outlines my story of resilience after a major motorbike accident that nearly took my life. This podcast is designed to take what's inside of me and bring it out so that you can feel motivated to crash into your own potential. Brace yourself because the podcast is about to start. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to your Monday podcast session number nine. Might be a Monday that you're listening to me, might be a Tuesday. That you're listening to me, but if you're tuning in on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, it doesn't really matter. The main thing is you're tuning in to my podcast, so welcome. Today we're going to be reading about my my chapter and my experience on uh, with it, with depression and overcoming overcoming that part of my life. So up until now, I mean, right now we're in we're in stage four lockdown here in Victoria. So stage four means that basically you can't go can't go out of your house without permission, really. Uh, it's been, and it, we're 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 about we're about five four or five weeks into it. So it's it's we're really starting to take its toll on not just me but. The whole, the whole, the the whole community, the community in general, are really starting to, starting to feel the effects of it, and I can see that firsthand. But it won't be long until we're out of it, until we are back into life, which will be a very good day for everyone. So up until now, in lockdown, I've had, I've had quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit of uh, things that have occupied me, and I have been working tirelessly to finish off the VCAL program, the VCAL literacy program that we're, we're teaching here in Victoria in high schools. We've been fit, I've been finishing it off and putting all the final touches onto it. And that's been, that's taken us, taken us months to, to complete that. So up until now in COVID, I haven't really had any time to do any speaking. So last week, I actually presented for the first time to St. Ignatius College down in Drysdale. Now, I just did that over a, over a Zoom meeting. And I'll tell you what, it was, I'd say, it was very, very odd. It was odd because it is, I mean, I like, I don't mind talking to myself when there's no, no, no one there, but to do a whole presentation for an hour really takes patience and you kind of really you really got to be you got to be on point and you really have to know exactly what you're saying but so anyway it went uh, it went well so all the, uh, a shout out to 
all of the Ignatius, uh, St. Ignatius College folk down there in Drysdale that were listening to me speak and that are listening to this podcast right now. For all of the teachers that are listening into this podcast, I am presenting, coming to you straight from the dining room. The platform that I've set up isn't too bad, uh, and it's sort of the best best that I can do. All right, let's uh, let's get into it. So first off, I just would like to show my gratitude for you taking the time out of your day to listen to what I have to say. Time is it's the most precious resource that we can't ever get back. So I appreciate you spending your most valuable asset listening listening to what I have to say and what I have to share with you. So thank you for that. Today, chapter 9 is all about overcoming depression. And we're going to start on page 67, which is the start of the uh, start of the chapter. This chapter goes for I'm just looking it up now. This chapter goes for about 10 11, 12, is a lot bigger than last week, goes for about, uh, goes for about 14 pages, so it might be a little bit of a longer one today, and maybe I'll cut it, cut out some of the, uh, some of the, the stories that I tell, um, nope, stuff it, I'm not cutting them out, you'll just have to sit here and listen to the whole thing, if you don't want to listen to the whole thing, listen to bits of it, listen to some now, listen to some later, and I'll just stop talking crap now. I'll get into it. Okay, so the uh, the quote that goes with this chapter is, You used to be a bit cocky at times. This accident has helped you become a much more authentic and compassionate person. By Dr. Damon Ashworth. In May 2009, I became an outpatient of Epworth and my rehab was reduced from 25 hours to 12 hours per week. This was around the same time that my mental state really started to decline. I started to fall into a depression that will go up and down for the next couple of years. When I first began therapy, all I wanted to to do was slip back into my old life. To do this, I thought the first thing I had to do was get back into my old study regime at TAFE. Before the accident, I was studying for my apprenticeship and thought I needed to get back pronto so that I didn't get left behind. But as the days, weeks and months went by, I came to the slow realisation that I, was, I wasn't going back to school with my old friends. Not that year, not next, not ever. This really disappointed me because I had so much fun with these guys during our classes in my old life and I wasn't mentally prepared to let them go just yet. In 2008, I was in the middle of, the, of my last module of the year. Then, one more year, and I would, be, I would have become an A-grade electrician. That would have meant more responsibility, which I wasn't too keen on, but more pay, which really got me excited. We are on page, now we're on page 68. Looking at my accident like this, it was a big inconvenience to my life plans. Nope. I'm going back to work and that is that, was the saying I lived by in those, da- in those early days of my recovery. When I eventually realised that my old life was becoming a distant memory, I decided that I had to get back to school if I was going to salvage anything of it. So in late 2009, I finally went back to trade school, nearly a year after my accident. This was awesome because I would catch up with my old crew. 
the minute I walked in, it felt different. The guys had nearly completed their final year of study, and I was still where I left off. As welcoming as they were, I instantly felt like an outsider. One of the guys had gone to jail, and another guy had quit. This wasn't what I was expecting at all. I started to snap back into the reality that I was actually living. I was put into a new class, and although the guys were alright, I didn't have the connection with them that I had had with the others. It was just different. I tried my hardest to fit in, but that wasn't good enough. The new guys had been together for two years, and I wasn't one of them. This really hurt, and it was the first time I realized that life was going to be very different from from then on. It was a weird feeling being an outsider in class, but it wasn't the only place I felt that way. For years following the accident, I felt like an outsider. Everywhere I went, with everyone I spoke to, I always felt that way. The only place I felt super comfortable was in rehab, because in there, I was on a level playing field with everyone. In the outside world, I always put myself below everyone else. I knew that this attitude was due to my brain injury, but understanding that didn't help me eliminate that feeling of self-doubt from my mind. To this day, I still battle with these demons on a weekly basis, but the difference now is that I have the mental strength to look past them. Going back to school meant that the major side effects of my head injury came into play. My lack of cognition, lack of concentration, and the way I was easily and often distracted. I was unaware of the mental problems I was having. All these things were coming into play at a time that needed my full attention. This was only 12 months after my accident, so my brain was still recovering, fortunately at a rapid rate. If the teacher was explaining something to the group, but the guy next to me was chatting away, the teacher would take the back seat in my mind and I would be listening in on what my neighbour was saying instead. I didn't realise that I couldn't multitask anymore and that I needed to put 110% focus onto everything I did. Distractibility, one of my chronic downfalls, was running wild in a class of young men. That module finished off with a fail, and that finished off my year finished my year off on a down. Things really weren't the same anymore, which took a very, very long time for me to accept. The following year, I moved out of the standard education system and started my communications with the disability liaison service of the school. They took good care of me, giving me a private tutor and setting up classes that I did on my own to eliminate all the distractions. I spent the next two years completing the one final year of my apprenticeship. Okay, just going quickly out of the book here and let you know that I spent I so I spent the two years completing my one final year with uh, with a a teacher and that was uh, the teacher that was taking care of me was Michael Smith. Uh, shout out to to you Mick if you're listening. Uh, he was the one that helped me complete that year which I he must have had so much he must have had so much patience explaining things over and over and over again for me to understand to try and get it which was pretty cool and then uh years later when I I developed um the house at the back of my house when I built that house uh I I knew that Mick had gotten out of the electrical or out of the uh, out of teaching and gone back into um, running a company an electrical company so I got them on board and they came and did all of the electrical work him and his wife Billy came and wired up the house at the back 
So thanks, thanks guys, and hey, I hope you're enjoying the podcast if you're listening to it. All right, back to the book. Another goal of mine during this time was to get my license back. Nine months after my accident, when I was living at home permanently, I went to the ophthalmologist to get my double vision sorted out. Once that was taken care of with a pair of specs, I was able to go for my license again. It had been taken off me because of my brain injury. After all the necessary protocols were followed, it was determined that I could only drive 12 kilometres from home and I couldn't drive a car over 80 kilometres per hour. Uh, you what, mate? I had my licence back, but I couldn't do anything besides drive down the, down the shops and buy myself some chewing gum and a can of Coke. But I played by the rules. At the time... I couldn't see any other reason for them doing this apart from making me pay for the turmoil I'd put everyone through over the previous few few months. But of course it wasn't a punishment but a sensible precaution because I was not, I'm not only a danger to myself but to every other person driving or walking near, my, near me and my car. I was on this restricted license for another year. This was the birth of some very, very dark days. We're now on page 70. At this point, I was still expecting to wake up from the nightmare at any moment. I never seemed to shake myself hard enough to quite come back from the world I'd begun living in. As days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, and months turned into years, I kept going down and down, then back up, then back down again. Around May 2010, I thought things were starting to look up as I was connected with my first girlfriend since the accident. This brought a whole new dynamic to my life that I did not have the ability nor the brain function to handle. The relationship didn't last too long for obvious reasons, which knocked me down off my perch and further down than before. At the time, not having my license meant that I was becoming my own best friend and spending a lot of time on my own. I became disconnected from all forms of reality, which was the fundamental root of my MDD, Major Depressive Disorder. I had so much resentment for life, not for any one person, not even for the accident, just for life. For nothing in particular but the situation I found myself in. I got sick of calling people, so I just stopped. I had no midweek commitments besides rehab, so the thoughts in my head didn't stop circling around and around all week long. While everyone was working, I was at home thinking. When everyone was out playing sport, I was at home thinking. And when everyone was having fun with their friends, again, I was at home thinking. I just couldn't understand why people did not return my messages for what felt like years, in brackets, but in reality was only minutes. They were busy living life and I was not. On the 15th of November, 2008, My life had stopped dead in its tracks and to watch life go on without me really hurt. The hardest part about this situation was that no matter how hard I worked, I was never going to catch up. All of my trade school mates were graduating and starting their own businesses. Other mates were getting married and having kids and others were building their own houses with their own two hands. But I was stuck back in 2008. I was still a 23-year-old disabled toddler. We are now on page 71. I'll try to explain what my mindset was at this time. Most of us go through life looking forward 
to our time off. Time when we get to relax with family and friends. Time to enjoy the things in life that make us happy, such as playing sports, going to parties and socialising with friends. Well, in 2008, when I had my accident, this was all taken away from me, so I wasn't in fact looking forward to the weekends at all. The weekends saw me missing out on life. Instead, I was looking forward to the weekdays, those days when everyone was back at work, not having fun, just like me. Being on my own meant that I wouldn't embarrass myself by saying something stupid. I wouldn't offend someone by saying something stupid. And I wouldn't have to justify the, th- the stupid things I said. It got to a point where I would crave having time alone so that I could just think. All I did in those days was think and imagine. Imagine a better place in the world that I'd rather be. The best part of the day was when I was sleeping because that was the time I didn't have to deal with my issues. While everyone continued with their lives as normal, I was living my life, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Did I feel worthless? Absolutely. Some days I loathed myself and some days I loathed the world for putting me through what I was experiencing. I tried to reach out to numerous people throughout this period, but maybe I did this in a too subtle way. I, did, I don't think anyone picked up what I was putting down. These people weren't professionally trained to catch what I was throwing, and maybe they weren't emotionally ready for it either. Who gave me the right to waltz in there and lay all my issues down on the table? I didn't ask for the permission in these situations, which I think was my downfall. I just dumped my problems on people without them even asking or showing an interest in what I was going through. No one in my life had any understanding of what was going on between my ears. Sometimes not even me. At the time, I was living with my parents and they had a good idea of the pain I was suffering. But even for them, it wasn't always apparent what was going on. They were so supportive and they knew me best. But that, that wasn't enough because sometimes I didn't even know who I was myself. The lowest point of my co- recovery, when I hit rock bottom, came on a day when I was on my own. We are now on page 72. Mum went off to work, Dad was busy and I was home alone. I got up in the morning and went downstairs to have breakfast. After breakfast I sat down and watched TV. Lunchtime came around and I was still marking out my territory on the couch. I got very hungry at at one point so I decided to get up and prepare something to eat. I ate then then I sat back down because Judge Judy had just come on. And I had nothing better to do than watch mind-numbing midday TV. The afternoon came and went and I was still on the couch. Mum came home and when dinner was, was served up, I finally got up off the couch to eat something again. There was nothing more enticing to me than sitting back down to watch more TV after I had eaten. Doing nothing all day is the most tiring job of them all. That night, I stayed up late just to watch my favourite mind-numbing midnight TV before I retired to bed. Something had to change, because if I had another day like that, I wasn't sure I could guarantee the ending. Rock bottom was the time I started rebuilding my life. So I spoke to my neuropsychologist at Epworth, and she referred me to a clinical psychologist in the community. Once a week for the next two years, I got to chat to someone who just got it. 
who understood the things that were going on in my head. He knew how I was feeling with everything I was telling him. But better still, he could tell me why I was feeling that way. He showed me the light and made me realize that I was being ridiculous. I was so caught up in my own world that I had forgotten the wor- that the world didn't revolve around me and that other people had their own things going on in their own lives that had nothing to do with my insecurities. Around, around the same time, I got in contact with an old friend, Damon Ashworth. He was completing a doctorate of psychology at Monash University and we started to catch up regularly down at the local cafe just to hang out and talk. Talking to Damon was great because he was my age and he just got it too. There was no need for me to justify my attitude to him because partly thanks to his uni studies, he had a better understanding of my problems than most people and even myself to a certain extent. To this day, I still hold him up, hold him up with Damien, my gym buddy, as a true friend and a dramatic influence on my recovery. We are now on page 73. From an early age... I had been an active kid, always playing sport. Whether it was football, tennis, diving, gymnastics, hockey, soccer, skateboarding, weightboarding, water skiing, snow skiing, snowboarding or kayaking. You name it and I probably enjoyed it at one time or another. With the accident, incapacitation was at the forefront of my mind and this limiting belief engulfed my life like a 10 metre wave. I was so fixated on what I couldn't do because of my fixed mindset that I didn't go down any avenues to see what I what I could still what I still could do. My rehab therapists were aware of my declining attitude to life, so they decided to take me down to another, down another path of my rehabilitation, and that was in a way in the way of snow sports. They knew that I had been active once, and that I believed. I could no longer participate in any activities that had got me excited as a kid. They were determined to show me the other side of the wall that stood between a happy life and myself. They grabbed me by the arm and dragged me over that wall, inviting me up to the mountain to go snowboarding. I can't go snowboarding, look at me. I could barely walk down a flight of stairs on my own. How was, I, how was I going to handle standing up on a snowboard sliding down a hill? I can't do it. I'm disabled. I was told that even though I was lacking in mobility, if I could stand, I could do it. No, I can't. I'll pass. Thanks. This was the first time since my accident that I had a chance to feel completely capable like every, everyone else in this world. But there was something standing right there in front of me called a limiting belief. My initial thought when I was first asked was, no, I can't do it because I'm disabled. The next day, I was asked again. No, thanks. The next day, I was asked again. No, I don't think I can do it. Thanks. The next day, I was asked again. Do you really think I can do it? I don't think I can. Again and again, I was asked until I surrendered. Okay, I'll do it. What have I got to lose? This will show them how disabled I really am. But as the date came closer and closer, I got more and more excited at the possibility of enjoying life again. We're now on page 74. The bus left from Richmond Railway Station on the last Friday afternoon of the snow season. Dad dropped me off and waited to wave me off 
as if I were a 10-year-old on his first ever school camp. This totally felt like a school camp, except I wasn't 10 years old anymore. I was 25, and this wasn't school. We're off. Next stop, Falls Creek. And I was oblivious to the fact that my life was about to change forever. The bus was full of people who who were struggling with mobility, just like me. Except these people knew what to expect. I didn't. I hadn't seen the snow since I was 17, when my family went on a trip for the weekend. So when we reached the mountain and I saw the snow, it was like the breeze had changed direction and and I was kicking with the wind. When I finally stepped off the bus, it felt like I had left my depression at the door. I was so excited, like a little kid when he walks through the gates of Disneyland. I was so pumped to be where I was. My thoughts then were, if all these people could do it with their challenges in life, why couldn't I? Insomnia mixed with excitement and stirred in with anticipation meant I barely slept a wink that night. Howman's Gap, where we stayed, had a scout hall feel to it. This complex was designed for large groups of school students, so every room housed four people. We all met in a huge dining hall for breakfast. We arrived at the gates with all all our snow gear by about 10am, and by 11am I had almost forgotten that I had an accident. I had moved far away from the reality I was living back in Melbourne. I was very discouraged when they placed me in a piece of equipment that was designed for people with mobility issues. This was when my reality kicked back in and I realised that I was exactly the type of person that this equipment was designed for. I spent the first day sliding slowly down the hill, sideways, doing what I what they call a falling leaf, with someone holding on to me. It was dreadful. I felt like I was never going to be able to do it. By the end of the first day, I had almost all but given up. I was sore and tired, but I kept a positive attitude. I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. By the end of the trip, I had finally made it down the bunny hill on my own. This was the run with the magic carpet, in brackets, a conveyor belt that takes you up the mountain. And the run that is actually designed for kids. I made it. I finally made it. Achieving this was a defining moment in my recovery. This was when I saw the light. I was a big kid having so much fun. For those 30 seconds on that run, I felt like I was totally able in my body and mind for the first time in almost two years. I was off the sidelines and back in the game. This changed my life. And it was all thanks to Disabled Winter Sports Australia, in brackets, DWA. Back I went to rehab with a smile from ear to ear. I didn't shut up about it for weeks. It was the start of spring 2010. And the, cha- and the change of season had brought with it new hope into my life. Just going out of the book here quickly, this is was basically the birth of part two of the book when I went overseas to Canada because I wanted to go snowboarding. And when I got back from, from, from traveling, I then started doing volunteer work with DWA and became a snowboard instructor with the disabled group, which I think was pretty cool, just to be able to give back to the organization that did so much for me. 
Another cool thing with DWA with a with a DWA membership is that I or everyone that get, has a membership with them has a disc gets a discount uh, with everything to do with the snow. So your lift pass, the mountain pass, uh, your your all of your gear hire if you need to hire any gear, all of that you get half price because snowboarding is here in Australia definitely is a very expensive thing to, uh, activity to do so anything to cut down the cost of that is is absolutely brilliant and that was the reason why I got into snowboarding and continued on with it because it saved this membership saved me so much money doing it and it ended up becoming not such an expensive thing to do and I guess the reason why I'm telling you this is just to let you know this is one of the other perks that comes with having a disability, just like the disabled parking. Um, you know, there's there's some there's 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 light at the end of every tunnel, and there's always a silver lining to every single cloud of darkness. Jeez, that was a bit morbid, wasn't it? All right, back to the book. While I was on the snow that weekend. I had a conversation with one of the instructors about where in the world he had been snowboarding. It turned out that he had been to, f to the French and Swiss Alps and also spent a season over in Canada. This was the birth of my next goal. Oh, there you go. Uh, this was the birth of my next goal. Loud and proud, I made it public, public that I was going to Canada to snowboard and spend a season there. It didn't register at the time that I had only made it down the bunny hill, the run that kids could do with their eyes closed. What in the world gave me the right to think that this was possible? I couldn't even walk down a flight of stairs without help. So what made me imagine a time when I could be snowboarding in Canada? I had only been to the snow once since the accident and I had barely made it down to the bottom of the bunny hill on my own. It was very clear to me from early on after the accident that I should concentrate on getting my body right before I let my, my imagination run away from me. But when people tell you you can't do something, why should you listen to them? People have told me for years that I couldn't do things because I had one arm, because I had a brain injury, because I'm not all there. And honestly, sometimes I can't and I'm not. But that's not for them to decide. It's for me to decide. It has to be my choice to give up. The more times that you don't quit, the stronger you become. One of the more positive aspects that my injured brain has injected into me is my determination. We're on page 76. If I want to do something and truly believe that I can do it, it will consume me. I can't stop thinking about it. It's like I become fixated on it. I became fixated on this. I was going to Canada and I wasn't about to let it go easily. I was only able to snowboard once in, in 2010 and then I had, I had to wait a year until I could give it another go. A whole year to think about whether I was capable of doing it again. So I just want to quickly go out of the book again here and... Give a shout out to Jade and Dave Galbally. Now these people uh, were—I met them on a on another snow trip that I went on. 
This other snow trip was in 2012 and this is when I was doing rehab out in the community. And there was, I had an OT, Robin Guthrie, another shout out to her if she's listening. Um, she, um, she was getting me prepared to go traveling overseas. And we did uh, an exercise where I had to go traveling myself. So I had to organize the trip, I had to plan it, I had to execute it, and then I had to return home. And I chose to go to Falls Creek. Now, I had to, as I said, I had to plan the trip, I had to book all the accommodation, I had to get myself there, I had to spend the week there, and I had to return, you know, do all this stuff on my own. And I went up to Falls Creek and I spent the week on my own. And I was sitting down at, uh, if you've ever been to uh, to Falls Creek, at the bottom of uh, the ruined castle lift, there's like a little cafe. Uh, I'm pretty sure, I think it's called Dicky Knees. So I was sitting there outside having a break um, on a table and then a family came along and they sat. They asked me if they could sit down, of course, yeah, because the whole table was free. I said, yep, come on, sit down, join me. They sat down, and as I do to every single person that, that wants to listen, I tell them about my accident. So I told them about my accident, what I was doing there, how, how, how excited I was to be up there, and I was going to go traveling one day, I was going to go to Canada, and and yeah, they, 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 they were really interested in this story. And, and I actually formed a quite a good bond with this family, and, and we spent a lot of time together that week. And now you can fast forward eight years and um, and today, to this day, I'm still very good friends with Jade and Dave, which brings me to my, my point about mentioning them is that you never know what conversation is going to lead to what friendship and what that friendship is going to bring to your life. Because these guys have brought so much into my life and this was all because I decided to open my mouth and start a conversation. It didn't need to be a conversation about my accident. Uh, I guess that was just sort of the, that was the, the conduit that I used to sort of start talking because that was kind of all, all I knew at that point. But if you're ever sitting there alone and other people are around, do not be afraid to open your mouth and start a conversation with them because, as I said, you don't know where these conversations are going to lead to and what they're going to bring to your life. So, yeah, shout out to Dave and Jade and Robin, of course. Yep, back to the book. This also gave me time to realise that this wasn't a magic fix and that there was still a long, a long road ahead of me to get past depression. At the time, the goal to go travelling was set because I wanted I wanted so desperately to feel like I once did, with all the dreams and ambitions I once had. This was part of, of the reason I started training so hard at the local gym where I met Damien, so that I could give my body the best chance of, of success. This was definitely the starting point on a long road to my recovery from depression and gave something to my psychologist to work with over the next two years when I attended our catch-ups. In the early days, before the surgeries began, I was just a hopeful kid who was on his way 
to being back in the game. The brain injury held my comprehension skills at ransom, which meant that I wasn't able to understand what had happened to me and on what scale. I had no real insight into my situation. Back then, I was living in oblivion, in a land where things like depression went unnoticed. I didn't quite know what depression was or how to deal with it. Even if I, ha- even if I had known, it wouldn't have made, made it much easier. Depression is one of the hardest non-visible disorders anyone can go through. And it's not something that you tackle with your mates on a Friday night. The World Health Organization states that globally more than 300 million people suffer from this debilitating disorder. In brackets, see www.worldhealthorganization.int. I'm not going to read that out. because uh, Just go to the World Health Organization and look up depression. That was, that was where I got that fact from. I discovered that it is a 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, irritating hassle. It's like a cyclone that, can't, that can go on for weeks, months, and sometimes even years. To get to the other side of depression, unscathed, I had to understand what it was, what triggered it, and the best way to go about treating it. My psychologist did his best to explain it to me, but it was something that I needed to do my own research on if I was going to have a fighting chance. If you are going through something similar, or you know someone in this position, all I can say is speak to your doctor about it. Ask for help. Don't feel that you have to go through it on your own. And do your own research. Research research this illness, because the more you understand what it is, the more easily you can, you can understand how to deal with it. I will try to give you the best idea I can by giving you an insight into what I went through. I suffered what is classified as Major Depressive Disorder, commonly known as MDD, Unipolar Depression, Clinical Depression, or just Depression. According to the experts at Beyond Blue, it can be diagnosed if a patient has experienced a set of symptoms for two or more weeks. Speaking of Beyond Blue, their website is a great place to go and find out more if you think that you have depression. Go to www.beyondblue.org.au While going through MDD, I lacked the energy and interest to do just about anything. Every little thing I did was a challenge, such as study, work, leisure activities, eating, sleeping, and even relationships. These things became physically and mentally overwhelming. I felt a sense of worthlessness and unimportance. MDD stopped me from finding enjoyment in any aspect of my life and small problems became major catastrophes. I became discouraged by the smaller setbacks. I was lucky that I was in rehab at the time because this gave me access to the help I needed at the drop of a hat. Here is a list of things that I did to supplement my psychological treatment. I now know that when you when you're depressed it's okay to change your life and your habits if that will help you meet the challenge and get through it. Okay, so here is a list. Okay, uh, the first one is take life easy. My psychologist suggested that I sit in the back seat for a bit. This meant 
that I should let other people take care of my life for me rather than taking on the world by myself as if nothing had happened. Something had happened, a motorbike accident, and as much as I hated it, I needed a bit of help in life. Life at rehab was not too stressful. I could go at my own pace, take breaks when I needed them, and there was no pressure to perform. We're now on page 78. When I was with people who didn't understand what I was going through, in brackets, most people, life moved, life moved at a very quick pace, which I wasn't able to handle. I would feel very overwhelmed very easily, but I didn't recognize this as depression, so at first, I could not take the right measure to overcome it. I later understood that to overcome this feeling, I should take a time-out approach. This meant getting away from people, finding a quiet place and allowing the activity in my injured brain to settle. This is the reason I still prefer to talk to people one-on-one because it's less confronting. The next point is uh, get support. Unfortunately, I tried to take this on by myself for too long before I got help. Although my parents were right there by my side, that was still not close enough because they were not in my head. In rehab, though, I could relate to each and every one of the people who were there. Around this time, I was told about a church group that might might be helpful to me. I decided to check it out, but not being religious, I wasn't sure if it was if it would suit me. I didn't realize until I went along how much I needed support from people my own age. So I went to I went to church. The younger people of the church were organizing a camp that I was invited to. I was enjoying my time with them, so I thought I'd give it a go. Although I didn't continue going to the meetings long term, they were exactly what I needed at the time. People my own age to talk to. And I'm grateful for that. The next point, plan it out. A great tip the psychologist gave me was to plan out my days. At the start of each day, I would come up with an unorganized plan and jot it down in my diary. That way I knew vaguely where I was going and in what direction. Writing it all down gave me the ability to set and achieve my goals each day on a micro level. Once I constructed a plan, I could then see the formation that my day would take. Going through a day that had structure really helped me feel as though I had achieved something each day rather than sitting around and wasting time. At night, I would look back on the day and know deep down that I had been productive. By seeing each day on paper, I could avoid things that I knew would get in the way of reaching my goals and I could plan to avoid any triggers that would really ignite difficult feelings. We are now on page 79. My diary became my safeguard and I carried it everywhere with me. The next point is write everything down. Because I always had my diary, I was able to write everything down in it. This was also a suggestion from my psychologist to write down all the information I could about my day. It was a great thing to do at, at the end of the day 
before I went to bed because my memory at this point was still mm, still shady. If I didn't write things down, I would most likely forget the finer details of a day. Information that hadn't needed to be recorded in the past now suddenly needed to be recorded. I filled my diary with notes about all the good things in my days, all the bad things in my days, little reminders as to what emotions I felt, and everything else I thought was important. Writing down as much information as possible in my diary helped make me aware of the different triggers that played a part in my mood, and when I was planning planning the following day, I could use the notes to assist my routine. The next point is research. Education plays a big part in everything that we do in life, and depression is no exception. Because my computer became my best friend at, at times, I was on the internet for many hours a day. I needed to make my time more purposeful than just reading the latest news feed on Facebook or watching a funny prank on, on YouTube. I scoured the internet for information on what was, what was going on in my, he- in my head to see if there was anything I could do to fix it. I researched as much as I could about the illness to get a greater understanding of what was going on in my head and why. Books are also a great source of information in this area. While researching, I discovered the American psychologist Martin Seligman and his book on positive psychology. Two books by Martin Flourish and Learned Optimism were full of world-leading information on what was going on inside my head. Another American psychologist, Carol Dweck, wrote a book called Mindset, which talks about the fixed mindset as opposed to the growth mindset and how we think about our failures as human beings. These books have been a great help to me. Okay, just going out of the book quickly here and tell you that those psychology books, are they're like philosophy books and they're full of just... They're full of philosophy speak, uh, which is sometimes very confusing to understand. And these books, like Martin's books, are like 400 pages long. So these books took me a long, long time to read, considering that I would often read a paragraph maybe two, three, or sometimes even four times just to understand what they're trying to say. And if if I didn't understand after the fourth time... Then I just gave up and went on to the next paragraph. So it was, uh, they, they took me a very, very long time to read. But I ended up getting through them and yeah, it was good. Alright, back to the book. Okay, we are now on page number 80. And the next point is avoid isolation. It's actually a, um, it's actually a very good, uh, good point to make. Seems we're right in the middle of isolation right now. Um, This will be interesting to read. Being isolated can be hard for anyone. Being isolated whilst tackling MDD was incredibly lonely. The isolation started initially because my inability to go out and I was over calling people to come and hang out with me. Also, while I saw people on the weekends, during the week when others were at work, I was in total isolation. By isolation, I mean the feeling of isolation rather than the reality. I could be in a crowd and still feel isolated. 
My life lacked connection. Yes, I was talking to people a lot, but I lacked the commonality with people. Being around the people and especially around friends made me feel incapable. The way I tried to manage this was by doing things on my own. Taking on the, on the world sol- solo was a great way to avoid embarrassing myself, offending anyone and avoid, feeling, avoid the feeling of not being capable. It was one of the worst things I could have done for my mental state. I realised this once it was almost too late and it made crawling my way back into a society very hard indeed. Although those days are long gone for me now, still this, they still linger in the, in the back of my mind and come out to play when I am alone. Writing this book has been a very tough challenge as it has been very isolating. But because I have had a, I have had a goal to finish my book, it has been enough to distract my mind from the demons that once ruled the roost. Now, just quickly going out of the book here, uh, in this COVID nineteen situation, uh, in the isolation situation that we are in here in Melbourne, um, I. I feel that I'm actually taking it on really, really well because I've been through this before, and and I know the, I know that I know this feeling very, very well, and I know the best sort of thing that I can do to to help occupy my mind. The last time I felt this 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 feeling of isolation, which I mentioned back in one of the earlier chapters in surgery, uh, I I felt this feeling of isolation last year when I had the operation and that was when my mental state really started to decline but knowing how to get through this does not make this any easier but the thing is that this time round in isolation I have had a purpose the whole time I've been just I've been working tirelessly to get this uh, to get this program this VCAL program finished and complete and that has basically occupied my mind the whole time which has been a really good thing for me so the best advice i can give to people that are feeling this lack of purpose and this lack of interest and this boredom is to find a purpose give yourself a reason to get up every day and achieve something Obviously, this isn't a magic fix, but it's just my little piece of advice to help you get through this period. Another good thing to 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 remember is that it's not just you that's going through it. It's not just you and me that's going through it. It's not just me, you, and your mum that are going through it. It's literally every single person in this world that is in the same boat. See, it was a really really isolating time when I was going through what I was going through in 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 my recovery in the depression period because I was the only person that was going through it I was the only person on my in my boat sailing away I was the I was the captain I was the first mate the second mate the third mate I was all the mates um so it was uh, a very very solitary time for me now, this isn't to take anything away from what you might be feeling right now. 
Uh, it's just to show you that you know if if I can get through what I've gotten through, then it's possible to get through anything. Okay, back to the book. The next point is exercise. Being incapacitated made it very hard for me to go out and get my heart rate going in any kind of enjoyable manner. Growing up playing sports, my lack of a of ability now cut deep and my lack of exercise just added to the ice added to my isolation after discovering that i could snowboard and setting my big goal to go to canada i had a, had a reason to get to the gym and start exercising again in any way i could i researched the best exercises within my capabilities that would advance my snowboarding skills and enhance my balance on the snowboard rochelle my exercise physiologist, came with me to the gym and set up a program for me to follow. My goal to go to Canada and snowboard really worked well in overcoming my depression, as it was based on sport. Although the trip turned out to offer me exercise and so much more, the initial goal to go snowboarding kept my motivation levels up. I was prepared to work on my body so that when so that what I wanted to do would eventually be attainable. The gym also helped me to escape the isolation that was where I made my connection with Damien. Depression was a very difficult state to negotiate. For the most part, I dealt with it in solitary confinement, although I'm grateful for the support I've had throughout my time trying to cope with and manage it. To my family and everyone else who helped me at that time, I want to say thanks team. They are still making sure those stresses don't break in and roll me for all, all I've got. And that is the end of page 81 and the end of chapter number 9. You won't understand because I'm going to edit out a lot. Uh, but this, 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 oh, you won't see it because I'm going to edit it out a lot. But this has taken me a very long time to read this chapter and it's been getting me very frustrated. I've been needing to take breaks all day. Uh, it has actually taken me quite a number of hours just to read through those uh, those 10 or 11 and 12, however many pages there were. So to finish up, I'm just going to quickly read you the first cha- uh, first paragraph of the, uh, of the next chapter to uh, show you how my reading is going badly I guess all right here we go Uh, when you when you go to shake uh, this chapter is called speaking about it Um, when you go to shake someone's hand you you usually raise your right hand simultaneously with the other person you are greeting you reach out and make contact when your hands lock together Where this comes unstuck is when you raise your left hand instead of your right. Where this comes unstuck is when you raise your left hand instead of your right, which results in the other person giving an awkward twist of their hands or accommodate the unexpected gesture. This confusion would usually lead to the question, what happened to your arm? Okay, that was... Now, it didn't sound too bad, but... Oh, jeez, this, this... 
today was uh, not as good as I would have hoped when I woke up this morning. Uh, okay, that's it for the day. Uh, if anybody wants to uh, ask me a question, any question, I'm happy to talk to you. You can jump on my Facebook page or Instagram and type in The Injured Brain and you will find me uh, wherever you get your social media fix. All right, until next week, take care, my friends, and don't do anything I would not do. Adios. So that's it for today. If you liked what you heard, hit the subscribe button so you do not miss an episode. Better still, hit the subscribe button and leave a review. See you in the next episode.